0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Happy New Year to everyone. It's nice to see everybody. It's always interesting uh, how the group slightly expands every January and (laughs) September. It's like this imprint in our mind that Now is the time to go back to school or to fix our life or to do what we feel drawn to do. So it's good. It's good to have these rituals. And I want to talk about that a little bit tonight, just how to use ritual in life, not to be ashamed or shy about the power that habit has. We we want to play with it. I mean, if all we do is resist our habits, we're sort of missing half of it. We should use the power of habit to shape our life in the direction that seems wholesome. But first, I want to take a little time tonight and probably the next two or three Wednesdays to just revisit a basic approach to awareness practice or mindfulness practice. And uh, many of you have been practicing for years, so please just adapt or adjust. The instructions don't feel like you you need to use them literally but it's nice to have a system so the mind the heart knows what it's doing when you meditate you don't want to be thinking about how to meditate when you're meditating so it is worthwhile to be clear and of course there are many approaches so you have to be clear what approach you're using otherwise your mind's going to be confused and you'll spend your time On the cushion or on your chair wondering is this the right technique I was better before when I did it this way or that way and also I think as a way of putting aside doubt we should be able to answer basic questions that the mind will throw out as a challenge to ourselves or as a challenge to our practice like why the hell are you doing this and then we should have a very simple Resonant answer for ourselves whether we're asking ourselves that question or somebody else's So here's a simple four-part Strategy that I just guided us through but to Formally at the beginning of the sit, and then as many times during the sit as it feels appropriate Develop the art of settling down So of course to do this at the beginning makes sense But then any time during the sit, when your mind has gotten caught in one of its grooves and it's off to the races, thinking about this, worrying about that, basically we're not meditating. So as soon as we realize that the mind has been lost, in a sense, it's probably useful to start over again. And why not just start over again with settling down? And now you might be pretty settled down, but... This art of settling down is kind of a check in. We're just checking in with the body, checking in with the mind. How is it? We're not judging the body and mind. We're checking in, and we're remembering this possibility of relaxation, just in the grossest level. Well, oh. my shoulders are up by my ears, I can release that. If my jaw's tense, that can be released. If the belly's tight, it can be released. If the mind feels like it needs to do three things, they can be put aside. Not that we're not going to do them, but not now. So this is a settling down. It's it's the art of leaving the world behind. And we want to be really clear about this. And it's not just when you sit down that you begin the settling, but like if you're coming to Common Ground, even driving over, or walking, or biking over, we can start right, right then to let go of the world. You know, and especially once you've parked, or once you've locked your bike, once you've arrived, the whole building, in, in a sense, is a reminder to uh, to leave behind our self-centered dramas. For a period of time and again it's not that we want to think that our self-centered dramas are bad because that's a self-centered drama too so it's just an experiment a willingness to simplify for a period of time so we see the building we see our friends in a way everybody's reminding everything and everybody about this place should be reminding us okay there's this experiment about letting go of future letting go of past, letting go of hopes, letting go of dreams, letting go of humiliations and embarrassments, and settling in. And this is the great thing about having a body to the present moment, where the body is such a relatively easy way to settle into the present moment. Okay, what do I know is real? Well, walking is real or sitting is real pressure is real coolness or warmth is real so settling into the present moment and composing the body and mind so you know it's like uh we have the posture that reminds us of settling like you know we see the statue of the buddha behind us there's a there's a certain energetic archetype to being present know being kicked back in a hammock is not the universal archetype to being present to being mindful but some sense of integrity in the spine again it's not about being rigid it's it's a very fluid you know the spine has its natural curves but it's just a sense of being balanced so when you think about the posture think more about this integrity or this sense of balance than uprightness or rigidity It's like the the vertebra are nicely resting one on top of the other and then that head just sits there in a balanced way and there's just a sense of being oh yeah right here right in the middle things as they are and you know when we breathe in deeply and out deeply a few times at the beginning of a set this can also be a beautiful ritual 'Cause when we breathe in, it's hard to deny what we're feeling when we take a deep breath in. Especially if we're consciously filling the lungs a few times. It's it's not easy to be in denial that the body's like this. So we take a few deep breaths, we exhale a lot of air, see how much air we can exhale. Well, the archetype of letting go is sort of built into the exhalation. So you can make this deep breathing, this gross activity of deep breathing, sort of part of the settling process. And then once we've at least to some degree put aside the past, the future, all the self-centered dramas, we're somewhat established, aware, awake to the body, awake to the present moment, then it's in this context of being relatively present that it's appropriate to ask, well what what's the point? So now we're reflecting on our intention. Because we we probably a lot of us we get ourselves here for neurotic reasons. Like right? we think we're bad, so I'm gonna go to common ground and become good. Or, you know, meditators are cool and I want to be a meditator. I want to be cool. Or whatever it is that gets us here. I come here because they're fire me if I don't come here. <laughs> or something like that, you know, or I'd be embarrassed if I, if I didn't show up. So we have kind of the, the, the sort of superficial reasons why we're here. My friend comes, it's just what I do on Wednesday night. But then after we've settled down, then we're able to touch a deeper aspiration or intention. It's really the second part of meditation. It doesn't need to take a long, long time. It might just be five seconds it might be a minute or two but it's a simple reflection it's more of a question than the answer what's important or you know even the image of being on our deathbed what would be meaningful what can I do how can I live now that might have some real resonance or real meaning come the moment this body dies Or I'm in some crisis. So it's like we're trying to activate our deepest understanding. You know, it's only going to be as deep as it is in that moment, but we want to have some sense. I always language it like, you know, some aspiration, some sense, intuitive sense, that peace is possible here and now. Not like, In some utopian vision when we get all our problems on earth fixed and my personality gets reformed and then peace is possible but that somehow for me the aspiration is that this heart can drop its defenses this mind can drop its sort of neurotic defenses because it's okay in some deep profound way that I don't understand and again this is an aspiration we're not sort of expecting to, some to realize the end of practice you know total and complete freedom here and now but some intuitive sense some being open to freedom the freedom of not needing to struggle and in a way for me now again it this is personal this how we connect with our deepest aspirations so I'm just sharing a little bit how it is for me. But we have to raise that question. We have to kind of go beyond the superficiality of our lives to to look to raise that question, well, what what is actually relevant about living? What is possible in this life? And for me, it's that this life isn't about struggling And so that doesn't mean I'm going to stop struggling, but I'm going to start questioning it. I'm going to start being interested in the experience of struggling, or what in Buddhism we call dukkha. You know, the resistance, the unsatisfactoriness, the contraction. I'm going to get interested, is this necessary? Is there another way to be in this moment? Is this contraction or resistance justified? Is it actually productive of something good? is there a better way to be than this contracted or resistant way in this moment so this is what the aspiration is it's just raising this question what is possible in this moment with this mind and body this life situation what might be possible and that that short but deep reflection on our aspiration (coughs) our deepest intention it actually then paves the way for Understanding how to use the technique or the meditative strategy that we're going to use So if we're following the breath, which is a basic mindfulness practice connecting sustaining attention with the breath You know the point isn't just to know the breath the point is to be intimate and at ease With things so we use the breath to explore that deep intention is it possible that question is it possible to be radically present undefended and at ease in any moment in life so we take a particular moment like this in breath and we practice how can we be open and intimate with the in-breath well when I notice that I'm controlling the in-breath but that's not being completely open that's having an agenda so we can tease away the agenda tease away the control and let the in-breath be more and more of a natural process but then we start getting dull so we have to deepen the interest increase the interest make some effort to be interested in this natural process of the in-breath and just Anytime there's control or denial or distraction or resistance, we can then that in that intention or that aspiration reminds us, well, can this experience of being present with the breath be a moment of real peace, of real ease, a real happiness? Like does my happiness, my sense of wholeness, you know, you can use the words you want, you know, mystical enlightenment you know, whatever word or words you want to use is that available here and now or is it conditional because in buddhist practice the way the buddha set up the practice as his own you know in terms of his own practice he realized he was not interested in something that was conditioned as early on as he after he left his palace he might Remember, he was a prince. So he left it behind, became a wandering ascetic. And early on in his six years of practice, he developed very deep states of concentration, beautiful, um, bright, radiant mind states full of ease and energy and light, wholeness. But he realized they were conditional, meaning that they lasted for a while, and then when the meditation fell apart, you know, when the body got tired, or the knees started to ache, or it got too hot or too cold, and he came out of his meditation, well, then the exalted states fell away. And he, you know, as it's said, at least in the stories or the legends, you know, he matched all of his teachers at the time. He was able to develop or surpass they exalted states of concentration in meditation. But he, he rejected it because it's not that they weren't beautiful states, exalted states. They were beautiful and exalted states. They were very deeply healing states of mind, just like people in this room who've had deep states of concentration realize how healing and beautiful those states are. But they're still conditional. So. In this tradition, the aspiration isn't for some temporary nice state of mind, as nice as those can be. It's for an understanding or a way of being that's unconditional so that the peace or the release we experience isn't about being in a perfect little bubble in our concentration or in the western suburbs (laughs) or whatever you imagine the right perfect bubble to be. But that the release comes in any moment, in the difficult moments of our life, in the beautiful moments of our life, in the boring or ordinary moments of our life. So, this is the aspiration. And you see how nicely that leads to the training, which is to practice radical opening to the present moment, like the next in breath or the next out breath, which isn't, you know, special usually, <laughs> it's just the breath or just feeling the knee or feeling the back or hearing people move around in the room or the sound of the furnace blower. So whatever the next moment is in terms of what we're noticing, what we're waking up to, then we practice, like I said, connecting. Now, you might use a different word, but whether you use the word connecting or no word in your mind, it doesn't matter. What matters is that in each moment, Or in moments, we're training the mind, we're rediscovering the possibility of this radical presence or being open, interested. And part of being interested in the present moment is some realization or recognition how confused we are mostly by our concepts, our interpretations of what's happening. So in order to really be present with our baby, with our breath, with driving, with hearing, whatever it is, in order to be truly present, we have to learn not to be confused by our ideas of what we're experiencing. Our ideas, our thoughts and images are one thing, and the experience is another. Or I should say the content what we take our thoughts to be is one thing. Everything else is another thing, which in Buddhism we call Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. And this is what we keep missing. We keep missing it because we've developed language and concepts, and then, unfortunately, we've gotten confused or lost in our thinking our concepts. And we basically are mistaking our thoughts for the world or for our experience or for Dhamma, the way it is what we take to be the way it is are just our interpretations and thoughts of things not things in and of themselves not experience in and of itself so this is the in-breath part so now we're on the third part of the training we've settled we've set the intention to be at ease with conditions as they actually are and then we do the actual training we take the present moment as a place to do this training and if you like the technique we use tonight then use the in-breath as the archetype of connecting it's kind of a metaphor for connecting breathing in life breathing in the moment breathing in the way it is you see it kind of fits archetypally. so we just breathe that in oh yeah it's like this and, and with the in-breath we're Remembering the possibility of being interested, even if it's just the breath or just the sound or just sensations in the knees. Kind of rediscovering there's never anything in the way of being interested or being in awe of how it is now. So we practice that with each in-breath. And then with each out-breath, we practice releasing anything extra, which means a lot, you know, because so much is extra. We don't really need to add anything to how it is. So we have to keep the minds in the habit of concocting, of adding things to the moment, adding interpretations or definitions, or I like it or I don't like it, or this is good or this is bad. So the mind is going to add those things. There's no nothing we can do about that. It's just it's habit. It's been conditioned to do this. So we just practice, as much as we're adding, we're also letting go. So that's the exhalation is just... Not letting any of the concoctions, any of the add-ons stick. So as soon as the mind says something about the experience or defines it in some way or interprets it in some way, we just keep letting it go. We're not afraid of the interpretations or the definitions or the words because that's just more thought. That's just more add-ons. We're just letting it be really loose. It's like uh, with the exhalation, we're allowing this mind-body... To actually manifest as it actually is, which is a process. It's an unfolding process. It's not a thing. And uh, so you can, for me, I really like the image or the idea of a free fall. So use the exhalation as a free fall, as if it's not going to end. You know, like we exhale, but we're not anticipating the end of the exhalation. It's like a complete release, a complete surrender. A complete laying down of the life of the ego or the life of wanting some grip, some ground. You just put it down, you know. And then, you know, if our life gets reborn with the breath, great. But as we're exhaling, we just let it all go. It's such a nice thing to do. You know, like you come home after a hard day and you lie down. You know, you sit on your favorite chair and you just let go. you'll jump into a nice lake in the summertime and you just float there and you let go you know that feeling so we can practice this I mean that's such a wholesome feeling why shouldn't we practice it with each exhalation we'd be really good at it over time you know and just like see seeing clearly is such a wholesome thing why not practice it with each in breath to actually See things as they are, not to be confused by our thoughts and interpretations, our concepts. And it doesn't actually matter, it doesn't matter much what we use, whether it's the in breath, the actual sensations of the in breath, or as we're breathing in, opening to the experience of hearing, or opening to sensations in the body, or opening to emotion that might be present. Because the art is really about not being confused by thought. And so it doesn't matter where, how we train or how we develop, or it's much more about what we're not doing and how we can keep things simple. So this is the middle part of the training where we're learning to connect, to be intimate, and to allow things to be, to let go of anything extra like control or denial or distraction. That training is the bulk of meditation. It's the bulk of, I think, a wholesome spiritual life. In our intimate relationships, learning how to actually connect with our partner or friend in a moment and to allow things to be, right? At work, we need to breathe in and recognize this is how it is now. This is what needs to be done now. And then we have to release into that task. We have to pour our life into that task. Because having a job for 30 years and resisting it is hell. You know, having a relationship and resisting it for however long is hell. Having a body and resisting it for a whole life is hell. So we have every incentive to do this training formally in our daily sitting time and informally for the rest of the day. That's the idea, really. Our sitting practice is just the same thing we're doing all day long. It's just done in a more simplified environment. That's what makes sitting practice different than the rest of life. It's a more simplified environment, you know, the 45 minutes that we can put aside most days for our sitting. You know, that's like a real gift to develop the skills that we want all day long of connecting and releasing into life, connecting, seeing it as it actually is, and releasing into it. And it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but we breathe those in. We know, oh, mis- making mistakes is like this. And then we release into being the person who's just made a mistake. We feel the regret. We feel whatever pain is there. And we allow that to be. We breathe it in. We feel it. And we don't add anything to it. That I'm terrible. like that We don't need to add anything. It's just the pain itself is what it is. You make a mistake, and there's pain. If there's no pain, there was no mistake. Right. I mean, someone else may think you made a mistake, but if we actually made a mistake, if something was off, we'll feel it. It will feel unpleasant in our heart. And that's all we need. We don't need to add anything extra to that. And if we do something really beautiful, we'll breathe in or we'll just connect with it. And we'll feel that lightness or that beautiful quality in the heart. And that's it. We don't have to think, oh, boy, I'm really a great person. That's unnecessary. But if we do that, we can breathe that in and we'll notice that doesn't feel good. And then we'll allow that to be. We won't judge ourselves for taking pride in our good actions. You know what I mean? So wherever we're at, we can do this practice. We can breathe in and we can release. And then the last part, the fourth part, so we have learning the art of settling, the art of aspiration, practicing that each time, it feels appropriate but for sure at the beginning of a set or when you wake up in the morning is another good time before you go to bed at night is a good time to just reflect on the deepest aspiration and then the bulk of our practice is this training of connecting and releasing and then the fourth part is a deepening recognition that this bulk of practice training the mind to connect training the mind to release that this can be trusted to be an organic thing. So much of the time, this feels like a lot of responsibility to connect to the next breath, to just not do anything extra. It's a lot of work, a lot of remembering to not get distracted. But we want this fourth part to slowly develop, where the training is seen as a natural and impersonal process, that wisdom itself. The whole force of our practice, our spiritual life is itself a natural process. So then the practice ultimately becomes about trusting what's been set in motion. And even the idea that I have to do my practice, like in the, for example, in a sit, when our practice is cruising along, so now we've settled. The aspiration is alive, we've initiated it and it's kind of reverberating in the mind. We've done some training. But now the training just has some momentum. So we're just naturally noticing what's predominant. We're naturally releasing, not adding anything to what's being known. So it's just knowing and nothing being added to the knowing. This is what we call practice with momentum. Knowing and nothing added. And then this fourth recognition, or this fourth art, is not to mess that up <laughs> not to feel like you got to do something because I'm a meditator or I should be doing something it's like the fourth part of practice is knowing when to leave things alone and just you still have to do something maybe and then that something is trusting trusting that there's nothing to do except to be just let things be or as one teacher I studied with said letting go and evenness it's just kind of a nice phrase, sort of don't make a stance, don't make yourself somebody in how you let go. Just let things let things be natural, naturally unfolding, which is what they're doing anyway. So I like often the word trusting, because it's trusting that everything knows what to do. So we're, we're dropping the sense of being in the driver's seat or being the somebody who's practicing. So another way, the same teacher, he has another way of saying is like uh, non-distracted, non-meditation. <laughs> so that's what you're doing. You're doing non-distracted, non-meditation. You don't want to conceive of the idea of being a meditator because that's adding something. Now, early on, that's a useful idea. You know, I've got something to do. You know, I need to settle. I need to set my intention, just rediscover my deep intention to be at ease with conditions as they are. And then I need to kind of organize my mind around this aspiration. Okay, if I want to be free with things as they are, let's practice connecting with things as they are, and then see if I can let go of anything that doesn't look like freedom. You know, and that's what we do. Okay, well, let's try the breath, okay? Breathing in is like this. Well, can I just let that natural process of breathing in be? Can I release anything that's extra? And now the exhalation, and now hearing, and now pain in the back. And now a disturbing thought. And now a beautiful thought. Can I breathe that in? No. oh, it's like this. And not add anything to that. So we'll go back to these four steps. But it's a simple way of remembering the practice. Four arts. The art of settling. The art of aspiration. The art of training the mind and connecting and releasing. So we're training and being free in the moment. If we want to be free, we have this is what the training has to be. The means and the ends have to be similar, right? And then the last is taking the self out of the picture. Because at some point being the meditator, being the person who's a good meditator doing what he or she is supposed to do is too much. It gets in the way. And all that's left to do is just trust. To allow things to unfold as they are already. So I'll leave it here, but we'll revisit it. And I wanted to say a few things about just the building itself and how it supports this practice. And it's a nice occasion because we have a new altar, which we almost burnt down because I left a candle on on Monday morning. Luckily, there was a nice plate underneath it. Um, Anyway, some of you were here at our old building, and you know we had the altar kind of off to the side, and it wasn't so... Uh, prominent. And now we have a more prominent altar and it might push some of your buttons and some people might really love it. And we want to create space for you know all kinds of folks. And some of us have a, a need for ritual and a need for symbols. And so I want to explain how to use it as a symbol because it's easy to get confused by symbols. This is the problem. In uh, the yogic tradition, you know, there are different... Uh, personalities to spiritual life, like there are bhakti yogis. Some of you know these. Bhakti yogis are practitioners, spiritual practitioners that have a lot of devotional energy. And there's jnana yogis, people who have a real kind of discerning or wisdom orientation. And there's karma yogis, people who like to awaken through the process of service, you know, getting involved in kind of good actions in the world. And there are many others kind of uh, traditions of practice. Raja Yoga is one that you hear a lot, which is a more integrated approach. But the Bhakti Yoga is considered to be one of the fastest ways and one of the more dangerous ways, because the nice thing about Bhakti Yoga, the devotional practices, is it raises a lot of energy, right? So if you if you go to um, you know Kirtan, you know where they're doing sort of chanting to Krishna. You know, if you've ever been in that setting, you can get a lot of energy doing chanting, I and mean, your mind gets absorbed pretty quickly. Or you could go to a Baptist church, probably, and mm-hmm. do some really rousing singing, and develop a lot of heart energy very quickly. And you know, of course, there are many kinds of devotional activities. And these exist in Buddhism, as they do in all of the spiritual and religious traditions. And. We don't want to be afraid. We just want to understand them intelligently and sort of get a sense of our personality and how that might fit in. So that's kind of one of the reasons we have things like an altar. But the symbols on the altar really are, it's like, what what kind of uh, archetypes are we developing devotion for? Because you could see the statue and you could think, well, I'm developing devotion for this guy who lived 2,600 years ago, who's really special. So special. More special than any other guy <laughs> or girl. <laughs> or something like that, you know. And then sort of we get to this, my God's bigger than your God thing. And, uh, well, you know, needless to say, that's problematic. So, my, my thought is, and I think this is shared by a lot of people, so it's not just my thought. The archetype, and when you look at the statue, you see it's it's we're looking at uh, mental or hard qualities that we can aspire to. So one thing that, that you see in a lot of statues is the quality of release and the quality of uprightness. Right? So we can aspire to that sense of physical and then also mental release, relaxation. And but that relaxation doesn't come because we're chilled out in some tropical island where there are no noxious predators or sounds, you know. But we're right in the middle of life. And that's what the the uprightness and the posture represents. And then this particular mudra that this statue has is the fearlessness mudra. So the Buddha is saying that there is no need for fear there is a way to go beyond fear. Or the fruit of this path is fearlessness. Come check it out. I mean, literally, that's what the Buddha would say. Come check it out. Hey Maho, is the Pali phrase. Check this out. See if this is true for you. That fearlessness is truly possible. And then the, the other mudra on the left hand is the Samadhi mudra. So it's the mudra of calm or tranquility, that this is a path to realize fearlessness in life we need to see things clearly, we need to have insight and the direct way to insight is to have a calm mind. When the mind is agitated, the agitation is distorting how we're seeing, how we're connecting. So if we want to see things as they actually are, we need to develop calm. So. The Buddha is basically giving a mini Dharma talk. He's saying, "Develop calm, realize fearlessness," something like that. So that's when you now that's one way to work with the statue. Now there are different mudras. Like the mudra in the the community room, the little wooden Buddha that is in the corner, it has the Dhamma Chakra Sutta uh, mudra, which is the deep teaching, the kind of the heart of the Buddhist teachings, where he's talking about everything being process, or conditional, or uh, no center to anything. So this is, uh, the Buddha taught it in different ways, and this is what that mudra means. It, It means there ain't no center anywhere. No matter where you look, you won't find a center. You find experience, you find things being known, but you can't find a center anywhere. You can't find a center behind this person or this person. You just find things being known. You can't find the knower. In other words, you can look. That would be a nice practice. and just make sure to let us know if you ever find a knower. Before you let us know, you can just see, is that knower being known? <laughs> so this is uh, you know something we can just play with intellectually. So when you see that mudra, then that, that kind of be, is reminded. You know it's not just some kind of weird hand gesture. it sort of represents something. And then there are other aspects to the to the altar, like we often have something beautiful, like flowers, or sometimes I was thinking it would be nice to have a beautiful amethyst rock, or some kind of beautiful objects from nature, like we have the tree trunk, flowers, other things. And that's just like the mind, for, for one, the mind really likes to look at beautiful things. And it reminds us that. This path, which is often really difficult, it's difficult to sit every day, right? It's difficult to get ourselves here on Wednesday night. It's difficult to keep showing up on retreats. I mean, even when we get good at sitting still in an upright posture, it doesn't mean we're awake or paying attention. You know, we could be a billion miles away in our thoughts, in the future, in the past. It's not easy to stay in the present moment, to be connecting and releasing into things as they are. So we want to be reminded, this is a beautiful thing to do. It isn't like beautiful later, but there's something really wholesome and beautiful, even in the difficult times. We want to be reminded, because if we're not reminded, we won't look for it. And we'll think mistakenly that it's a path of drudgery, that we have to work really hard. And if we're lucky and the Buddha from above smiles down on us, we'll get some benefit. That's not what the Buddha said. He was very clear many times saying, this path is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. There are fruits to this practice every time. Every time we turn the mind toward things as they are, every time we practice trusting or releasing into that, the heart experiences some relief. Every time we turn away from the present moment, Every time we add on, we concoct, we feel the weight. Now, we may be distracted. We may not notice that we're suffering, but just because we're not noticing it doesn't mean we're not suffering. And then, now that our candle has burnt completely away, (laughs) we don't have a candle, but we will have another candle soon. And the light, of course, is an obvious symbol for awakening, as opposed to being lost in distraction, which would be the absence of light. So that's a you know a potent symbol when we see the candle, and the other thing that we liked and uh, we worked hard, the design committee to find something that would work. And Cecilia Schiller, a wonderful woodcarver in town, and one of our community members, um, created helped create this um, beautiful altar base. And we wanted somehow to reveal or to remind ourselves that nature is messy, that there's something really beautiful about that messiness. And it's really nice when you see a tree trunk like this. I mean, it's not like some perfect cube or whatever. You know, it's kind of rough and but it's, there's something really beautiful in the naturalness of it. And that's like our practice. It's messy, it's rough, it goes up and down and all around. But there's something really beautiful about it. And the beauty is in its naturalness, just like The tree it grew up with the stones in the soil and the particular minerals and the particular weather that it got and all the other conditions. You know, we all naturally appreciate those trees that have sort of, kind of been shaped by all the natural forces that they've been conditioned by. There's something beautiful about how life, how natural forces, come into sync with everything else. And that's a nice metaphor for our practice, too. So you can you can use this, this little thing here, just by the way, um, some ashes from Ajahn Chah's uh, funeral prior. He was one of the great teachers of the last century, a Thai Buddhist monk, and also a teacher of many Westerners, like people like Jack Kornfield and uh, Ajahn Semedo and many others who've made a big uh, Impact on Western Buddhist practice. So somebody donated a few ashes from that uh, event in '92, I think it was, when they um, when he was cremated. And then we have our compassion altar in the corner, where we have our community well-wishing book. And Edwin has just uh, written with calligraphy the loving kindness sutta. That's uh, that's the frame thing. And we have our Quan Yin statue, a beautiful statue. This is. Um, an archetype from Mahayana Buddhism, and Kuan Yin is the archetype type of compassion. So it's a female representation of wisdom, and uh, it's a really uh, sort of a place. And especially when we first come in the room, just as a reminder of Sangha, the community, and the support we get, and the beautiful qualities that naturally manifests by kindness and forgiveness and gratitude and patience and a mutual respect. And That also manifests just in how we treat the temple. The word temple, like this center, meditation center, comes from the word contemplation. So we want to respect the building as a place for this contemplation of being real or connected with things releasing into life as it is, and being supported by a community that shares this intention, this possibility of being free, not needing to have to spend a life in distraction because it's a miserable life. But actually, we can use life as it actually is to be free. And so we treat the building with respect. We treat the community with respect. When we walk in, even some practical things like uh, just understanding the importance of calm, this samadhi gesture. So we usually only use hushed voices when there are programs in the lobby. But also, we want to connect, and you know, sometimes connecting with our friends is more fro- full-throated. So that's where we have a community room. You can just put yourself in the community room if you want to laugh, if you want to connect more. Otherwise, use hushed voices in the lobby, and then. Before programs, no talking in here, so that uh, people who want to come early and sit, they have that opportunity to sit. Now, after the program's over, there's, you know, for some time, it's OK to have some talking in the meditation hall. We don't want to get tight about these things. But just in general, being sensitive about how rare it is that we have quiet spaces, and so we want to s- support that. So, I think that's most of what I wanted to say, as I mentioned before. We'll come back to those four aspects of practice the next couple of weeks, but there's a little time left, about eight minutes, if people have questions about what I've said tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cecilia thought it was cherry. Other thoughts? Yeah, Tom. When you say the way things are, that the way that we're seeing it and feeling it, the way things are inside of ourselves? Or, uh, or, or what, what you perceive other people are doing? and what, It's probably a whole other class. Nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the trouble with words. We need a, That's why in some ways it's better to start off with a different word like dharma, which is the Sanskrit, or dhamma, which is the Pali. So they're the same word just in two related languages. You know, sometimes it's better to have a different word because when I say the way things are, immediately we have a conceptualization. Well, this is the nature of the world. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Or You have a different interpretation of the way things are. But that's not what the Buddha is pointing to. He's, report, he's pointing to an experience that opens up when the mind isn't confused by thoughts. It doesn't mean that there aren't thoughts in the mind, although there are moments when there aren't that many thoughts or the thoughts that are present aren't very strong, aren't very diluting. But even if there are thoughts, it means not being diluted by them. So there may be a thought, oh, it's like this now, but the mind gets, well, that's just the thought, and it gets how ephemeral that thought is, that the thought doesn't point to anybody who's having a thought which is generally how we interpret a thought. So it means not being confused by experience, especially uh, mental or mental activity, the thoughts. Yeah. It doesn't mean there aren't habit energies, but it means that when a habit energy is happening, it's recognized for what it is. And then the Buddha also gives us some hints. He says, notice the changingness. Now, it doesn't matter what you're looking at, whether the mind is opening to mental activity, like thinking, or the mind is opening to hearing, or the mind is opening to sensation, or the mind is opening to seeing. Notice the changingness of the experience itself. That is a gateway into the way things are, or dhamma. Or notice that any grasping, any clinging, any defining is a contraction. So notice that and see if you can release. So in order to open to Dhamma, we have to release the contraction because the contraction, the resistance, the defining things actually uh, blocks the deeper understanding. And then noticing the conditional nature, the no center to what's being known. So you can use these three gateways, whatever seems... um, to be interesting to the mind as a way of, like, so you're there mindful of your in-breath, mindful of your out-breath. Well, as you're feeling or knowing the experience of breathing in, you can tune into the changingness of that sensory experience. So instead of, like, noticing the coolness or the warmth of the air touching the skin as you're breathing in, notice how with that temperature that you're feeling, notice how it isn't one thing. It's a process of change. Or you can notice that as soon as you try to control your breath, there's dukkha. And if you just let it be, there's freedom. There's ease or release. Or you can notice how, in knowing the breath, there's no knower. The more you give yourself to knowing the sensations, you have to let go of the one who's witnessing the breath or who's observing the breath. That actually keeps us from being fully present with the breath. So these three characteristics, as they're called in the tradition, are gateways to Dhamma. Seeing the change, seeing the unsatisfactoriness whenever the mind conceptualizes, seeing how impersonal, how there's no center to the experience. All of these help open the mind to insight or to Dhamma. Yeah, thanks Tom a little bit of time left, yeah, Mary, that's right. maybe a little louder, Mary, when the mind is opening to knowing whatever is, is the mind not a knower, that's a question not to ask philosophically, but to ask in the experience itself, so That's fine to do. So let's say you're knowing the breath, or you're knowing just more generally. You're just knowing the sensations of the body, and just the play of sensations coming and going. And then then naturally, organically, the question arises, well, who's knowing this? So the knowing takes the knower as an object, right? And then the knower that's being known isn't the knowing. Well, see, you want that experience of not a knower to happen thousands of times. And what it does is it, it transforms the way the mind's conditioned. Like if I just said to you right now, no, there's no knower, you know, well, then we'd make that into a philosophical construct. Oh, I guess there's no knower. But that's different than moment after moment after moment Seeing that whatever we take the knower to be can be known, so it's not the knower. And that actual experience of not finding the knower, and getting sort of comfortable, changes who we are, changes how we are in the world. And the question—it isn't about understanding it; it's about checking out, doing it and seeing if for you that the effect of doing it feels wholesome, feels liberating in your life. And if it does, then just keep doing it. You don't need to understand it. You don't need to be intellectually sharp to be effective at this practice. Now, if you are an intellectual type, it's helpful to think about it because people who are intellectual tend to trust their minds more than anything else. And if the practice makes a lot of intellectual sense, they might actually do it. But just because it makes a lot of intellectual sense doesn't mean you've gone anywhere in the practice. It just means it makes a lot of sense to you. But you got to actually do it. You have to do that. You have to, in the moment of seeing experience as it is, the mind has to realize that no center can be found. It has to realize that over and over and over again, and eventually it stops concocting, slowly, gradually for most people, it stops concocting a strong sense of center. And so the, the sort of um, self-centeredness gradually diminishes. It just becomes less of a predominant force in one's personality. And then the personality feels less burdened. But who's experiencing the freedom? You know, We could have a very interesting discussion about that. But it's different than the practice. I'm not saying it's not an interesting discussion. But generally, the Buddha would avoid those discussions because they're not productive as actually practicing. Or just a little bit to inspire us to do the practice. It's useful. Thanks, Mary. And I think we have to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Take a breath or two. However doubtful the mind is let's bring to mind the possibility of being fearless free no matter the conditions so our life may be relatively smooth now but no matter the conditions may this heart realize freedom freedom from fear freedom from confusion Freedom from craving. And may this life be lived in a way that supports the happiness, the peace, the ease for all beings without exception. Thanks, everyone, for coming. A couple of announcements. Thank you for listening.